We're back with Mike, and thank you so much for joining us again for a second edition of One for the Road. And I want to start off with this and just say, uh, and Bob Carter, you have to swear on a stack of Bibles you will not edit this tape out about what I'm just going to say now. So it has to be conclusive, the whole context here. Of course, all the other uh, stuff I edit. <laughs> That's right. It made me sound like Steve Brown. Uh, so I want to start by saying this, uh, just to you, straight up. Uh, I don't think the Bible is the Word of God. I think it has been changed so much over the years. We do not have the original manuscripts. You cannot tell me that we do. They are not here at all. Uh, there are passages in some Bibles that are not in other Bibles. The ESV doesn't agree with the NIV, and there's the NAS, and there's the King James. None of them agree on a bunch of issues. There's a bunch of conflicts. There are numbers that are wrong. There weren't even numbers in the original Bible with these things. People put these things together. So how can you possibly say that we can rely and trust the, the, the piece of paper that we have now in 2016? Um, fair questions. So I, I would say uh, I, I will jump to the resurrection of Jesus first and say let's look at some facts that are virtually undisputed by the majority, the large, almost unanimous consensus of scholars today and, and give you reasons why they accept these things. So the Bible does not have to be divinely inspired or an errant in order to be true. Um, so we need to ask a couple different questions. Uh, for example, historical reliability. Something can be historically reliable without being divinely inspired or inerrant. Tacitus's Annals of Rome, the war with Catiline by Sallust, uh, they are historically reliable, but they're not inerrant, and they're certainly not divinely inspired. When you come to the Psalms in the Bible, we believe they're divinely inspired, inerrant. But are they historically reliable? Well, no. You, I mean, it doesn't even apply to the Psalms, right? Historical reliability, that question doesn't even apply to the Psalms or Proverbs or Revelation for that part because um, it's not the proper genre. It's not a historical genre. So my point here is you can have one without the other or like say the book of Acts or the Gospels potentially, you can have both. They can be historically reliable and divinely inspired and inerrant. Um, so when the kind of questions that you just put forth, you know, why should we trust the Bible and then A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and all these different ob objections, I'd say let's go with historical reliability and let's focus on the resurrection of Jesus because I think you would agree with me, Mr. Atheist, <laughs> that if Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true, even if it were to be the case that some things in the Bible are not. And so I will spend my time focusing on the resurrection of Jesus. Let's look at some things that we can determine uh, with virtual certainty, historically related to the resurrection, such as Jesus died by crucifixion, that shortly thereafter a number of his followers had experiences in both individual and in group settings that they were persuaded were appearances of the risen Jesus to them, and that at least one skeptic, Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, uh, had an experience that he believed was an appearance of the resurrection of Jesus and converted to Christianity as a result. Now, you have to come up anybody has to come up with a hypothesis to explain those things. And the hypothesis that can best explain those facts is regarded as what's probably true. And when you look at it historically and you weigh these hypotheses such as resurrection, hallucinations, Jesus didn't die, 
disciples lied. Resurrection was a metaphor for Jesus' continued presence and memory through his teachings. Uh, when you look at these typical naturalistic explanations compared to the resurrection, when the resurrection fulfills the criteria for the best explanation far better than the others. So, historically speaking, the resurrection of Jesus very probably occurred. And if we got the resurrection, you got Christianity, it's game, set, match, and then everything else becomes peripheral. So we can answer those questions, and I'll, ch- I'll take them on one by one that you just gave me. But I just want to set the record straight that Christianity is true because Jesus rose from the dead, not because everything in the Bible is true. Okay. I'm running a fool's errand here, I feel like, all of a sudden, but I'm, I'm, I'm going up against the master. So some people would say, yeah. see, I'm, not, I'm trying to get myself off the dime here. Some people would say, yeah, but somebody just wrote all that 70, 80, 90 years later about the resurrection of Jesus and these people and all these kind of things. So there's no document from the day, there's no videotape from the day that says he did that. So how, how would you respond to that, that the writings came later? Yeah. Well, do you believe Caesar crossed the Rubicon in January 49 B.C.? It's written down. Yeah. Do you think that um, uh, that um, Caesar defeated Pompey at Pharsalus on August 9th, 48 B.C.? It's written down. Yeah. Okay. And it's written, you know, for the most part, most of those are written quite a bit after decades, uh, if not centuries later. Uh, Caesar's crossing the Rubicon. We have, I don't know, four to six sources, and they're all written between, I think it's um, 65 to 150 years later. Mm-hmm. So our records, our earliest and best records uh, regarding Caesar's crossing the Rubicon begin after our last gospel was written, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, in terms of the time span after the events. So they're written within, our accounts of Jesus are written within a pretty good period of time. For example, um, the Gospel of John is typically regarded to have been written 60 to 65 years later. Well, we're like 70 years after World War II, the end of World War II, and yet we're still interviewing World War II vets. Here at a church, we've got... Well, we've got the two Jacks, yeah. old Jack and young Jack. They're mm-hmm. both in their 90s, right. and old Jack's like one year right. older. Mm-hmm. Well, old Jack, yeah. didn't he fly on a B-29 Super Fortress? Mm-hmm. And yet he could tell us eyewitness experience, eyewitness testimony of what that was like. Um, just a few years ago, I was in a doctor's office coming out. My wife and I love World War II stuff. Mm-hmm. And I saw this old guy with a baseball cap with a B-29 embroidered on it. Mm-hmm. And I smiled and I walked out. And, and then my curiosity got to me. So I came back in the office and I walked up to him. Excuse me, did you fly on a B-29 in World War II? I sure did, son. Mm-hmm. I said, what was that like? That must have been mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, I was in the Pacific Theater. And I'll never forget the native women on the island we were at. They had a horrible odor to them. (laughs) And here it was like 70 years later, and he remembered that. So that's the latest gospel, John. Mm -hmm. When we're talking Mark, well, that's more recent than the end of the Vietnam War. Right. Mm -hmm. And we got plenty of Vietnam vets Mm -hmm. who could talk about what it's like, what it was like there. when you come to 1 Corinthians, Paul's writing that no more than 25 years after Jesus' death. 25 years, that's like 
what, 1991? Yeah. What was that, President Guilty. Clinton? President Clinton. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Um, you know, we remember that. Well, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 gives us some oral tradition. He says, I delivered to you what I also received. And then he gives us an oral tradition, a creed in verses 3 through 7. Mm-hmm. And most scholars today, for good reasons, date that. Um, well, we can certainly, if he delivered it to them, he delivered it to them around the year 51 when he established the church in Corinth, and he received it before then. So that's within 21 years, probably within 21 years, at the very, very, very latest 21 years. Now we're talking, I mean, what was 21 years ago? Last time the Braves won the World Series. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. It that's seems true. like a long time. Yeah. About 21 years 90, ago. That's right. 95, 96. Yeah. 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 Hey, I want to get myself 95. off the dime here a little bit. So for you who are listening, I kind of we kind of did that exercise. By the way, you got it from um, the eyewitnesses, which takes it back even earlier. Right. Um we did that exercise because uh, I wanted you to see how dumb I am and stupid I am with these things and how good he is. Uh, because I'm sure you're, you're listening and thinking, uh, how, could I be, how could I be that good? So maybe we want you to talk about that now. H- how do you go from my novice questions that I just had to you to beginning to be educated, just, just thoughts you might have on? What's the, what would be a good step for people who are listening? Because they're not going to be what you just said. I mean, people are saying, ah, it'll take a lifetime for me to get there. Yeah, well, it wouldn't take a lifetime. Look, I'm 55, and I got really serious about this. I mean, I was learning apologetics and stuff a little bit before, but I, got, I started to get really serious about it around the year 1997. So we're talking 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've been doing it seriously for 19 years. Um, so... You know, people can learn it. You don't have to devote full time to this. Uh, you know, because look, I, I go on university campuses. I debate professors. Um, I enjoy it. We have a good time. Most people aren't going to debate professors, and they don't have to do that. All they have to do is talk to their colleagues at work, or their neighbors, or their relatives, mm-hmm. and, and things like that, fellow students. And for that, I'd say. First thing you can do is, is get a hold of Lee Strobel's books. Mm-hmm. The Case for Christ, mm-hmm. The Case for Faith, The Case for a Creator. Mm-hmm. More um, Than a Carpenter by... More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, the, one of Strobel's books that I'm in. It was called The Case for the Real Jesus, but they've uh, reissued it like a year or two ago. I think it's called In Defense of Jesus now. Um, they thought that'd be a better title. So there's... You know, Strobel's books are very readable. Mm-hmm. They're fun to read because he comes at it as a reporter and each chapter is him interviewing someone. So it's an easy read mm-hmm. and you can get great information from that. Um, once you get a little bit heavier into it, um, you can go, by the way, J. Warner Wallace, Cold Case Christianity. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't read that, but I've heard from a lot of people they love that book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he just came out with a new one recently. Frank Turek has one out. Um, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Um, these are books for good start. Anything by Josh McDowell, mm-hmm. um, uh, Greg Kokel, um, um, Alex McFarlane. You know, these, uh, I, I could name so many of them. Mm-hmm. And then once you get this good foundation, then I'd say go to the next step and then read William Lane Craig's book, Reasonable Faith. 
Uh, that'll take you to an intermediate level. You get there, you'll be able to answer 90% of the people you come in uh-huh. contact with, if not greater than 90%. Mm-hmm. If you want to focus on the resurrection of Jesus, which I think is the silver bullet. I mean, Paul said, if Christ has not been raised, mm-hmm. your faith is worthless. It all mm-hmm. stands and falls, mm-hmm. stands yeah. or falls on the resurrection. So if you want to do that, Gary Habermas and I have a, a popular level book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Even has a CD inside for PCs, not Macs, but PCs. That's a simulated television game show with a three-dimensional animated game show host who's pretty funny. And he helps you master the information in the book. Wow. If you want to go real deep into the resurrection, then you can get my big book, The, the Resurrection of Jesus, A New Historiographical Approach, and get a really solid, thorough foundation mm-hmm. on a historical case for the resurrection. Well, you know, it was interesting what you just did. I, I, I loved it because I was attacking uh, the, the Bible in terms of veracity and history and that kind of stuff. And like a, a true politician, even though that was my question, you answered something else, which answered that question. I mean, you, you went to the resurrection of Jesus, and I think that's awesome. Just to say, let's let's camp there. That, that makes a lot well, of sense. Well, except that, that I'm an apo- a politician, though. That, uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. Politi- apologist. <laughs> apologist. <laughs> <laughs> no, not a politician. I'm going to write you in next week. I'm writing <laughs> your name. i got to write somebody's name in. I think we need to do something and just say, hey, let's just say, Let's reboot and start this election process <laughs> all over. We don't like either of the candidates. If it was only that was an option. None um, of the above. You said something, and being a seminary student right now, you said something that we even talked about yesterday. Is what you said that in order for a historical document to be true, it doesn't have to be inerrant or divinely inspired. Did I say that correctly? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you said that, and, and as a good Presbyterian, my a red flag popped up in my head. And as any conservative... Mm-hmm would say, how does that make sense? How does how is the Bible true, perfectly true, and doesn't and not having to be um and Aaron and God inspired. That that was almost like a not to insult you in any way, almost like an uh Andy Stanley approach, just whatever he's coming through right now with making those comments he made yeah. in his past sermon. Um where how do you get to that place where you're able to be comfortable to say something like that and not feel like you're borderline being blasphemous in a way that's a good question i'm comfortable with it because it's true all right (laughs) i'm not saying guys it was a nice talking to you (laughs) you know i want to hear exactly what you said because i think yeah some people who are listening may have their red flags may have gone there too so that's a great clarifying question yeah and i appreciate you asking it so i'm not saying the bible is not inerrant i'm not saying that the bible is not divinely inspired Mm -hmm. what i'm saying is a book a piece of literature doesn't have to be divinely inspired or inerrant to be true. Right. Okay? Right. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. So is it possible then that maybe the Bible's claim, at least like Second Timothy saying the Old Testament is divinely inspired, and you can make an argument for the divine inspiration of the New Testament, and I believe it's all divinely inspired. Okay. Um, but suppose some of those claims were just flat out wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. Suppose 2 Timothy 3.16 is just wrong. It was just the opinion of that author, period. Mm-hmm. Um, so do we lose the truth of Christianity? What if he still rose from the dead? Right. Isn't Christianity still true? Mm-hmm. See, the reason I think this is important, and I'm so glad you raised this question, is because I think that it can become the tendency of evangelicals 
to give a straw man that's easy to knock down. Mm-hmm. And you knock down that straw man, all of a sudden, boom, people lose their faith. Mm-hmm. Bart Ehrman is perhaps the most influential, skeptical New Testament scholar in North America. He, he just announced his atheism a few months ago. Excuse me. Before that, he was uh, an agnostic with strong leanings toward atheism. He left Christianity. He got his faith shaken, started to, while um, at Princeton, uh, because uh, he was doing a paper on Mark chapter 2, mm-hmm. where Jesus is talking and says, during um, the days when Abiathar was the high priest. Well, when you go back to Chronicles, I think it is, Abiathar is not the high priest. It's a Ahimelech. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, there's a contradiction there. So he did this paper on trying to reconcile Mark with the Old Testament, why we don't have a contradiction. And he he tried to reconcile it, and his professor came back and he says, interesting paper, Bart, but what if Mark just got it wrong? And he thought, hark, mm-hmm. maybe he did get it wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, so what does that mean? And all of a sudden, boom, inerrancy went down the drain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Divine inspiration went down the drain. Mm-hmm. I don't even think you have to get rid of divine inspiration. I think you can... Acknowledge divine inspiration and errors. I think it's possible to do that. So I will expect you to follow up and say, how do you do that? But let me, let me finish this one. Um, so my whole point is, I don't think that when we're out there talking about the Christian faith with a non-believer, why do we have to present the whole case and have them acknowledge everything before they become a Christian? Um, well, you want to become a Christian? What do I have to believe? Well, you have to be a Bible-believing, Bible-toting, fire and brimstone, pulpit-pounding, premillennial, pre-tribulation, or amillennial, whatever, uh, whatever translation, um, one dunk backward, Baptist Christian, mm-hmm. you know, King James Version, only Republican. Right. You know? <laughs> Put the cherry why, on top. Why right. do you have to have right. all of that in there? Why don't we just focus on the fundamentals of the faith, which is the the, the deity of Jesus, his atoning death, his resurrection, salvation by faith. Yeah. And the reason why I even asked that question, because my senior college, I'm writing my senior capstone paper for psychology uh, for my religion studies class. And I, in true prideful fashion, tried to tackle the debate of evolution, creation science, and um, creationism. And in that, I just found myself digging myself into a hole of just and I don't know which way is up and I'm entering into this very just dark place of God I don't even know which way is up and it took a work of the spirit pointing me to Ephesians 2 it's like the only reason why you even believe in me is because I've given you faith and that was enough to pull me out of my darkness which is the part that you're just talking about the inerrancy of scripture and, and, and it being God inspired is the faith part that's that's the work of Jesus. He has to do that. But it being historical fact, that we can defend it. I think that's what you're you're talking yeah. about right now. And and I'll add, I've had time, years, to mm-hmm. wrestle through some of this stuff, and that's why I'm comfortable. You're wrestling with it now. It's like mm-hmm. the thing with creation. It's like now you're being exposed to a bunch of different views, and you're mm-hmm. not. You're saying you don't know which way is up. You know something that really helped me um, a few years ago. Typically, I went from being a young earth creationist. I was thinking the earth was six to 15,000 mm-hmm. years old. And then I moved 
to be an, an old earth creationist or strong leanings in that way, where the earth is four and a half billion years old, the universe is 13.7 billion years old, but God created Adam and Eve, and it wasn't through theistic evolution mm -hmm. and all this. Um, and I'm still there. Okay, that's where I'm at now. But a few years ago, I heard a, um, a lecture by J.I. Packer. You've heard of him, right? The man, the myth, the legend, yeah. Yep, the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> One of the greatest Christian theologians of our time. I met him in June, spent some time with him in June and again in July. He's a great man. He just turned uh, 90. 90, that's right. Um, so, um, so Packer, in this lecture from several years back, and he confirmed this when I was with him, he says, Genesis chapter 1, in its entirety, says nothing one way or the other in relation to evolution. And he says, it is a prose poem and a quasi-liturgical celebration of the fact of creation and not at all a description of what we would have seen had we been hovering above the chaos. That's virtually word for word for what he said, okay? And he's, he goes on to say, "Did was there a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life in the garden? He says, I don't know. Back then, the ancients used trees as poetic devices. And then he says, did Eve, was she actually tempted by a serpent in the garden? He says, I don't know. These things don't bother me, he says. <laughs> and um, I asked him in June or July, I said, where are you on theistic evolution? I says, I don't know. I don't have a position. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, so he, he says, because I don't think Genesis addresses it. Mm. So here you've got this well-known, highly regarded evangelical, very conservative theologian who was involved in writing the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, the most conservative statement of inerrancy out there. And he allows for all forms of creation out there. Mm. And so, look, I have enough trouble interpreting the New Testament at times, so I leave the Old Testament to those who specialize in it. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I look at that and say, you know what, I'm fine with that. Mm -hmm. I don't have to know the answer to all these questions. Some of the questions I have will probably never be answered mm -hmm. this side of eternity for me. Mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. I know once you solve in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and you see that, it's like these other questions all just become second order, and they just don't bother me anymore. Mm. So um, it's fun to wrestle, and I'm glad you're in this position right now. Yeah. Mm. But I think we just need to remember to keep the main thing the main yeah. thing, and that's the essentials of the faith. The deity, atoning death, resurrection, salvation by faith, he's coming again. Yeah. And those are the fundamentals, the essence of the Christian faith. Those are the non-negotiables. Mm. The other stuff can be important. Uh, Gary Habermas, I'll, I'll finish up with this because I've been talking too long already, but he's, he uh, showed me this illustration. I love it. Imagine a target. There's a bullseye, and that's the fundamentals, the gospel essentials. What do you need to believe to be saved? Mm -hmm. Those are the gospel essentials, and then that's what we use for apologetics, too. That's all we really care about, for the most part, for Christian apologetics. And then you've got other stuff that might be right outside the really important doctrines, but they're not gospel essentials. In other words, if they turned out being false, it doesn't impact the truth of Christianity. Or if um, 
you don't necessarily have to believe these in order to be a Christian. Right. You might not be an Orthodox Christian, right. but you don't have to believe them to be saved. And so you think, mm-hmm. well, what would I put in there? Mm-hmm. And then, then you've got your tertiary doctrines. That might be some things like, are the gifts of the Spirit for today? Right. Do you ordain women? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and things like that. So um, I think it's important. I, I think that's really helpful to think of that target like that. And then work in your own mind, what would you put in each of those circles? And then, yeah, I think that can be real helpful. Yeah, absolutely. That's good. I've got a thought here. And I, I just for our, our, our audience here, I know our audience relatively well. So I think some would say this. Some would say, hey, uh, hey, you, you guys, uh, the Bible's inerrant and inspired mm-hmm. in the original autographs. Yes. So they would, they would put that as a qualifier in the original autographs. Now, what I would say to you about this whole Mark 2 section, or the passage where the guy lost his faith, uh, some might say, well, what really happened there is that Mark 2, where he, he uh, Jesus quotes whoever the guy is. I can't remember the name you just told me a second ago. Um, Abiathar. Abiathar. Um, and the guy in the Old Testament's name was? I think it was Ahimelech. Ahimelech. I might be wrong on that. That, that oh, the scribe who translated that 50, 60 years later or whatever, it was Abiathar, or Ahimelech, and he just he, he's having a bad day, ate some bad dates or something, and he puts it. <laughs> and you know, there are other things in the scriptures where where the, the word in many manuscripts is Lord, but Lord kind of sounds like and and something. You know, those scriptural variances, those type things. So I think, I think it's okay for us to say we don't know. How do you know that you know that you know? I know that this pen is here because I can, you know, I can, I can hit it. But believing that the Bible was inspired, that God inspired men to write the Bible, and it was inerrant in its original autograph, is a is a fair position to take. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we shouldn't be bothered trying to defend what we currently happen to have. Because what we right. currently happen to have has some gaps and mysteries, and that whole John is a John eight, where that mm-hmm. whole last section is not even in some of the early, you know, those type. To, so, to your point, to try and defend that to somebody else or prove that they need to believe that before they become Christian is a fool's errand for us, as opposed to saying, "Let's talk about Jesus." I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Yeah. And you're right; inerrancy applies mm-hmm. to the autographs, yeah. and. There are er- er- errors today, even Norman Geisler, mm-hmm. an uber-conservative, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Inerrancy himself, you right. could say. Mm-hmm. Um, he acknowledges that there are current numerical errors mm-hmm. in our Bible. Yeah. So I-, I don't get hung up on inerrancy um, because if someone came to Norman Geisler and said, look, all I'm wanting to know is, is the Bible I'm holding in my hand today the inerrant Word of God? If he's honest, he has to say no. No, exactly. And so you really have a firm grasp on an empty Mm -hmm. sack, don't you? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we put too much much weight on inerrancy because um, if you think about it, we do have numerical errors in our current biblical text. Um, And so that means one of two things. It means either God was incapable of preserving an inerrant text. How do you like that one? Mm-hmm. Hmm? There you go. No, you don't like that one, do you? No. I don't either. Mm-hmm. I don't buy that. I think it would have been, he's mm-hmm. far, very capable mm-hmm. of doing it. Mm-hmm. That leaves one other option. He was not interested in preserving an inerrant exactly. text. Exactly. Which means he's more, mm-hmm. some people are more interested in inerrancy than God. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And he's also very interested, by the way, in permitting his word, the precious word of God, to be translated 
into a bunch of different languages, which, you know, when you translate something, you lose a bit in the meaning here, there, and the other place from the Hebrew and Greek into English and French and Spanish and a bunch of other things so that people could experience the Word of God and power of that, but with the centrality of Jesus at the whole middle of that whole thing. Yes. Which means that where our, our friends, well, I'll say who are Muslim, would say, you don't translate this thing. Arabic's Arabic. We, Arabic's always, there's a whole other issue. That's probably a topic for another time. Yeah, that'd be fun to talk about. Yeah, another Absolutely. one. Also, so. um, but I have loved right, this. Bob? I have loved this. And appreciate you so much being a part of this and, mm-hmm. and sharing with us. And uh, I'm uh, excited. I'd love to have you back. And let's, let's keep talking this. And Sure. Hey, can I say just one more yeah. thing on the inerrancy thing? So you say, well, then how can we trust? If, if we know there's errors in the scriptures today, I mean, even small ones, you know, usually they're all peripheral, very small details. How can we trust it? And I would say, look, why do you believe in inerrancy? Do you take it on faith or do you take it because there's really solid evidence for it? Well, you take it on faith. Okay. Well, in that sense, if God allowed errors to creep into the text, can't you take it on faith that God saw to it that everything we need is preserved? that we need in right. his in his scripture. Well, of course, we would take that on faith. And you know what? Um, here's what leads me to inerrancy. And I believe the Bible's in error, in, inerrant in all that it affirms and all that it teaches, okay? Even if there's some, you know... Grammatical uh, You know, yeah, all kinds of uh, small numerical errors or, or whatever that are throughout the... Um, so... Uh, I just lost my train of thought, but um, the... Inerrancy, I think, I, I think that God preserved everything that we need to know. And Jesus, here, here was my thought, in the Gospels, I look at his view of scriptures. Mm-hmm. And he had the highest view of scripture. Mm-hmm. And if Jesus rose from the dead and the Gospels are historically reliable, I want my view to be just like Jesus' view because he knows best. Amen. Yeah. And if he could trust the scriptures... I can trust the scriptures. Amen. Mm-hmm. And so my reason for trusting the scriptures is because Jesus did. That's perfect. That's a great place to end. Thank you again. We'd love to have you back, Mike. Uh, we'd love for you to continue listening to One for the Road. Subscribe to One to the, for the Road. Tell your friends to subscribe to One for the Road. And your people who don't, you don't even like to subscribe to One to the Road. We're trying to get our, our, our listenership <laughs> even up here. That's right. We're having <laughs> a... Uh, that's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> we're those Old Testament guys. Get them to subscribe too. But thank you for listening. And we hope that you will tune in again on the next edition of One for the Road.